0: Old Testament readings—a familiar reading. It's Psalm fifty-one, and it's quoted in our passage today. We're going to tie it in. You'll see that. But I want to read this entire psalm as David brings his sin before the Lord and finds that great restoration, um, restoration, forgiveness, and restoration in the Lord. Psalm fifty-one. If you'd like to turn with me. And I don't have my markers. It takes me longer to get to the passages than it takes you guys. You guys are ready to go. I'm still on Psalm 54 here. Okay, Psalm 51. This is God's word. David cries out and says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Then I will teach transgressors transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good, design in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Amen and praise God. Now let's turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans 3 verses 1 through 8. Paul speaking primarily to the Jewish members of the congregation there in Rome. And he says this. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what value is circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their unfaithfulness nullify the faith, faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true. And every one were a liar. As it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you so much, Lord, for your precious word. And I pray that we would be alert to your word, Lord God, that by your spirit you would illuminate our hearts, that we're um, fully engaged this morning, that you would bring illumination and understanding, uh, conviction where that's necessary, Lord God, that you would bring encouragement, and just a willingness to, to look to you, to do your word, to rely upon you in every single way. Please be with me to bring forth your message powerfully by your spirit, effectively, Lord God, again, by your spirit alone. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, our Romans 1. We're continuing on. We're in chapter 3. And um, Paul's building, you know this, he's building up towards the doctrine of, of justification by faith alone, Christ alone, that we're saved by grace alone. This is Romans is a very gracious epistle, very much so. It doesn't start off that way necessarily because Paul is showing us, especially in the first two and a half chapters, just how sinful we are. And that is a big deal. We really need to get that because it seems like the reality of sin is kind of avoided by so many churches today. It just is, man. It just is. I'm not going to go through this. I'm not going to tell you, not that we're special by doing it, we're just doing what we're supposed to do, man. But you need to know how sinful we are and just what we deserve from God because of our sin. That's what makes salvation so sweet. That's what makes it so wonderful, so gracious, so unbelievable. I can't believe that the Lord has sought sought to save me in that way because I know that I don't deserve it. So Paul's making that point here. But he's building towards grace, building towards grace. You know, um, it seems like a while ago now we preached from chapter 1, verse 16 and following. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God, to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So Paul is building towards that, that graciousness, that justification, but we need to see our sin. It's a big deal. You need to know how bad we are before you know how good he is to us. So first chapter, he's really talking to the Gentiles, especially. We went through Romans chapter 1. We kind of talked about that. And, and Paul was mainly speaking to the Gentile members in the congregation. Chapter 2, he turns his attention to the Jewish members, especially of the congregation. So we talked about some objections to God and the gospel from the outside and, and how God deals with that. But now there's objections from the inside. It's a little bit different. This, and I think we can relate to this because we're part of the church and kind of we find it kind of fit into this. We're not in the Gentile world anymore. We've been brought out of darkness into his marvelous light. So, this morning, Paul deals with objections really from the Jewish members of the congregation, from those on the inside. Again, and we can relate to this. These are the people of God. These are the people that have tasted the goodness of God. Like so many of your neighbors know nothing at all about God. You talk to them about God, about grace, about mercy. Like, what are you talking about? You know, it's a foreign concept to them, let alone talking to them about their sin and their need for redemption. That's way out there. But we know this. We've tasted. We've... we've um, partaking of the means of grace, right, that God has poured out on his church. Uh, we're part of that covenant community. And so ultimately, the objection here, and I want you to get this, and it's going to come through as we go through this epistle. The objection here is an objection to the sheer grace of God in salvation. When those objections come from the inside regarding the gospel, you know that there's an objection to the sheer grace of God in salvation because. Even some of us don't like that. We want to do a little bit of something that God might be pleased with us. We want to have something that we've contributed to our salvation or something that says, God, look at me, I'm not so bad, right? No. Paul, what he's doing now in these chapters, he's cutting off all those avenues where you try to go, I'm pretty good here, I'm okay there, no, 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 We're, we, we've we seen it, every escape hatch, boom, no way, no way, no way, you just got to come to the conclusion, Lord, I'm a lost sinner, that's it, I deserve hell, I deserve judgment, and that's when we find grace, amen, that's a good, good news, that's what Paul is doing here, but he knows Especially from the inside people, they're just gonna be, um, pushback. They're not gonna take this lying down. Sinners never do. We always wanna get our, our, uh, words in, our, our perspective in. So he's anticipating some pushback in the verses, what we've read this morning. Again, in Romans 1, he's talking to the Gentiles. That's one thing. You're talking to those people out there. But now you're talking to us? It's us, Lord. It's, you know, we're your people. You're talking to us now? So he anticipates And answers four big objections, and I would say to the gospel of grace, ultimately, that's what it is. Um, And and the idea behind it, if Paul's teaching is true, then you can expect these kinds of objections coming from these people. So if Paul's teaching is true, number one, wouldn't that undermine his integrity, verses one and two? And we're going to look at that in a moment. Number two, wouldn't it undermine his faithfulness? Verses three and four. If but you're teaching us, Paul, about how sinful we are and, and you know, we're going to have to rely on the grace of God alone. That, doesn't that mess with God's faithfulness towards his people and the promises that he's made? Number three, wouldn't it undermine God's righteousness? Verses five and six. That's a little tough. That's a little tricky. When we get to that, you'll see why. And then number four, wouldn't it undermine his holiness? Doesn't this, this gospel of grace alone undermine his holiness? Because, you know, we're just free in grace and we can basically do whatever we want. That's kind of the argument that's set forth. Now, These are arguments that these people made at that time, but don't think that these arguments are just for that time. These kind of arguments permeate through the centuries and generations into the church of God. So you'll see, especially with three of these, connections to where we're at today, even if they're implicit. So it's it's important to us. It's not just ancient history. It's for us right now, because some of you have questions like this, or pushback, even in your mind, even if you don't speak it um, out loudly. So... Number one, let's just go through it. It's laid out very nicely. Paul says, "Here's an anticipation, an objection. Then, what advantage has the Jew? If we're all, if circumcision isn't doesn't mean that that doesn't save you. If you know you can't count on being Jewish, then what good is it? What advantage do we have? And you might ask the same question: What advantage? Look, you know, doesn't our heritage count for anything?" We're descendants of Abraham. You could say that the promise was made to Abraham. We're children of promise, right? That's we belong to him. We're part of that tribe. We're part of that group, right? God, doesn't that mean? Doesn't that count? Right? We have the prophets. We have the priests. We have the temple. We have the rituals. We have everything that you've given us that foreshadows Christ. So, so isn't that a, a, an advantage for us? Don't we have an inside track, especially over those on the outside, at least, right? You can think about it, kind of bring it up to today. You could see the the thread coming to even where we are today. How many of you were raised Roman Catholic? I was. I always thought growing up Catholic that you know you're kind of all around. Hey, hey, we we that I'm not like my pagan. I go to mass. At least once a week. I I went to CCD when I didn't skip, although all those days, how many of you skip? I see you nudging each other. We'd have to walk on the train tracks to to get to where our church was, and we would just kind of veer off and hang out on the train tracks and miss CCD. But, you know, I I know many of you uh, can identify with that. I was baptized, obviously, confirmed, went through confession, right? There's got to be something there. The rosary. Hail Mary, I've been a Christian since 1990, I could still easily recite, it doesn't matter if you're a Roman Catholic, no matter you know how long you've been converted or regenerated in Christ, you could still recite the Hail Mary, right? We're not going to do it, but I know that you can. <laughs> Is there some advantage to that? Come on. Well, what about you were raised in the Protestant denomination, the, the largest Protestant denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention? Come on, that's the largest conservative Protestant denomination in the world all time. Now it's kind of going downhill these days, that's another story. But nevertheless, there are many that are brought up in that way from the youngest age. They've been catechized, right? They've, they, they've been to Sunday school every week with their Sunday school teachers. They've been to VBS, they've been to all the youth camps, all the concerts, Missions, the short-term missions for two weeks. I've served in that way. Come on, doesn't that count for anything, God? I was baptized in the Jordan River, right? Christians love that. I um, have um grandpappy who's a who's a pastor in a Baptist church, and my daddy was a deacon, and, and I'm raising that. Church. Doesn't that count? For, what advantage is there? Is there any kind of advantage? Shouldn't God be okay? And look on it. We're not like those sinners out there. We're your people, God. So what are you saying? there's no advantage to these things doesn't account for anything paul says what what advantage has the jew or what value is circumcision paul says much in every way he says yes there is advantage there is absolutely Yes, in many ways. Now, we'll talk about many of those ways when we get to chapter nine, because this is a reoccurring theme that goes, goes throughout this epistle. But just in one way, very generally, we have a a worldview that's based on the Bible, right? If you're raised in a Christian home and a Christian ethos in that way, you are familiar with God. You are familiar with the oracles of God. That's what he mentions here. He says, we were entrusted with the oracles of God. That's the word of God. That's That's God's word, his communication to us. So that is a big advantage right off the bat that you have the word of God. You have the oracles of God, right? And they're preached to you. There are many other advantages. For instance, we have a worldview. We have a biblical perspective, and it is different than your neighbor who's not a Christian. We see things from a biblical perspective. Here's God who created, who made things. This is how we explain sin, the good things and the bad things that happen to us. You know, this is the, we have that framework, We have the Word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us this. All scriptures breathed out by God, the oracles of God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. You have that advantage. You have the Word of God in your midst. Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the divisions of the soul, of the spirit, of the joints, and of the marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's a powerful word. It's God's word. Absolutely. In his word, he reveals himself, doesn't he? You want to know who God is? Go to his word. You're going to find out because he reveals himself in his word. That's the sufficiency of scripture. It's the inspired and errant word of God, all sufficient. You want to know the will of God? Go to scripture. Don't go to the the fortune teller down the street. Don't go to the new age person over there. Don't go to some, oh, God's given me this special cut. Go to the word of God because it's sufficient. You will know his will for your life. Amen. We have that advantage. He reveals himself. We have the framework of, of redemptive history, of all of history, in the themes that come through in scripture. Do you know that? It starts with creation, that God created all things. We have the fall. That's how we get into sin and explain sin. We have redemption in Christ, and we have consummation. He's coming. we just saying about that. That's why we're not afraid to die. That's why we look forward to the coming of the Lord, because we'll be with him for all eternity. I like Ken Ham's seven Cs. How many of you guys have heard, and this is a real nice kind of uh framework and theme um, from beginning to end of Scripture. Ken Ham's really good with alliteration and, you know, he has a good way with words in that way, memorable ways of saying things. But he has the seven C's, and it's a nice framework. He gets back to the word, the oracles of God. This is what the people of God had, his word. Ken Ham talks about creation, corruption, that's the fall. Catastrophe, that's the flood. Confusion, that's Babel, and that's where all the sinners spread out and take their sin with them. That's why sin, one of the reasons sin is found in all four corners of the, of the world. Um, Christ, the person of Christ, cross, the work of Christ, consummation, the coming of Christ. So he lays it out in the seven seas. It's a nice way to remember. That's the whole theme of Scripture. Creation, corruption, catastrophe, confusion, Christ, cross, and consummation. That's it. Amen. Just remember, you have it. Advantage? Yes, you have an advantage. You have many advantages. The chief among them is you have the word of God, the oracles of God. He revealed himself in that way. But what Paul's saying, and here's what the danger is, and here's what you need to look out for. Here's what all of us need to look out for in the church, is that we do not assume or presume on these things, but that we use them to lead us to Christ, to an end of yourself. If you're using the Bible correctly, it should lead you to an end of yourself in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. If you appropriate the word rightly, by his grace and by his spirit, you will be led to Christ. You will be saved by grace alone. Do you understand? That's a big deal. It's a big advantage that we have. We have the word right before us. Are we using it? Are we reading it? Are we prayerfully, Lord, change me? Help me to understand who you are, who I am in light of that, what my problem is, what the solution is. Because you could have it, but if you use it improperly, it will not lead you to Christ. And that's the big delusion that many have. Well, I read the Bible every day. So what? Are you reading it by the power of the Spirit? Where you're being illuminated, where you understand what it says, because people have the word of God, but many aren't saved. Right? So, so what advantage? There's great advantage if you use it properly. If you don't, look, the, the the Jewish leaders, let's look at John 5, 39, 46, and 47. Jesus says to the Jewish leaders, the one who knew the word much better than we do, the Old Testament, many of them had the first five books memorized. They knew the word. Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And you do, right? They bear witness about me. They do. They point to Christ all the time. Grace in Christ. Grace alone. Faith alone. Christ alone. Jesus is saying that. You have this word and it points to me. If you're not coming to me, if you're not confessing your sin, if you're going somewhere else, then you don't have me, even though you might may have the word. He said, you search those scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it's they that bear witness to me. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. They're denying him. They say, we have Moses as our father, not you, Jesus. Jesus said, if you love Moses, and you believe the words that he wrote, then you would be trusting in me, because he wrote about me. The oracles of God they had that lead to Christ, if used appropriately, if appropriated in that way. But if you do not believe his writings, How will you believe in my words? See? In Luke 24, 26, and 27, Jesus says, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory, beginning with Moses and all the prophets? He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Scripture always leads to Christ. That's the advantage that we have. They're the oracles of God. You have those, but it always has to land on Jesus Christ alone. If it doesn't, then you're... You're lost no matter what you have. So what advantage? Great advantage in every single way. But that needs to be appropriated. The Jews didn't appropriate it well. Where did their teaching lead them? Way far away from Jesus, right? They ended up crucifying him. We talked about Roman Catholics. Those of us were Roman Catholics. Where does that lead? When you don't appropriate the word rightly and correctly, it leads to Christ by salvation through grace alone, faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone. It's another kind of salvation, which is no salvation at all, right? You're right there. You're all around Christ. But, oh, well, this is the way. It's sacramental. It's sacerdotal. There's efficacy in the sacraments. Well, that's how you hopefully get to heaven one day. That's not what the Bible teaches. It leads to Jesus Christ alone, through faith alone, in him alone. And even with the Protestants many times, what do they do? They just kind of assume, well, I send my kid to see, to Sunday school. I send my kid to VBS. Come on. I, they they walked the aisle. They were baptized when they were 14 years old. And they, so they must be saved. Where are they today, man? Where are our kids today? So many of them. See, you can't presume. You can't count on the advantages to save you. But they give us access to. And lead you to the Christ who does save you. Do you understand that? That's what Paul is saying. That's the advantage we have, that we have them in Christ, but we must appropriate them. Number two, the second objection would be if Paul's message is true, doesn't that message undermine God's faithfulness? Look at verses three and four. He says this Well, what if some were unfaithful? You know, those chosen, what if they're unfaithful? What if they don't come to faith or, or trust in Him? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? The answer is by no means. Let God be true every everyone. A liar, as it's written, and this is what he quotes from Psalm 51, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. This is a tough one, verses 3 and 4. And these are kind of all interrelated. This is tough because it's so very discouraging, isn't it? It's so very discouraging for us in Christ to see so many so many who have been raised in the church, who've been raised all around and in the faith and in the church as as they grow up, as they get older, they walk away from the faith. And you know this. You know this all too well. We have kids. We have um, friends. We have relatives. We have brothers and sisters who at one time, yeah, they were part of the church and they maybe made a profession. They're gone now. See? He's saying, look. Is God faithless because that that faith isn't there? He said, you know, um, what if some were unfaithful? When they, they walk away, they don't trust. Does that mean that God is not faithful to his promises of having a people for himself? Paul says, may that never be. No. With so many of these people, especially among the Jews at this time, they rejected Christ, didn't they? Does that mean then that God had not been faithful to his promises to save a people for himself? Paul says, no way. No way. No, it's very emphatic by never, not in a million years. God is faithful. Let every man be a liar. He shows his faithfulness. What the answer here is we show our faithlessness in our hard hearts. This is how hard our hearts are apart from grace that you could be all around it. You could be in it and still reject him. You know that? Do you understand that? And that's what he's saying here. It's discouraging, not because God somehow is unfaithful because not everybody's being saved who's in the church. It's discouraging because we're without authentic faith. And that's what's... God God is true. God is faithful. We are a lot... We're the ones who refuse. We're the ones who reject. We're the ones who replace Christ and the gospel of grace with something else, whatever that something else is. Right? It might be our works. Well... I'm just going to do what I have to do or try to do the best that I can in order to be saved or it might be walking away altogether. I'm going to try another path, another way because this isn't working for me. We refuse, we reject. Paul's saying that here. He's justified. He's faithful, man. And everyone who he has called will come to him. The blame is squarely upon us. That's why he quotes from Psalm 4. I put up um, Psalm 4. Uh, I'm sorry, Psalm 51, verse 4. David says, listen, what he does, he takes full responsibility for his sin. He's not trying to blame shift. He's not trying to squirm out of it. He's not trying to say, well, God, you put her in front of me or, you know, trying to get away with it. No, no, there's none of that. He understands and he takes full responsibility for his sin. He takes responsibility. It's no fault of God. God. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. That's part that's quoted in our text today. It's not his fault. And the reason that David takes responsibility for his sin is that God may be declared righteous in his judgments. And that's because God is righteous in his judgments. We have no standing with him. It's by grace alone that we're saved. We can't Say, well, God, not everybody's saved, so you know what? You must be faithless. No, he's faithful. We're the faithless ones. We refuse him, man. We fight against him. We can't stand him at times. Say, no, I, don't want, I want to do it my way, man. I'm going to live my life. I'm going to have it this way. Maybe I'll put God over here in this little compartment. No, no, no. He wants all of you, all of your life, every inch. There's no secret place just for you away from God. That's not how it works. You'll never know his grace. You'll never know his mercy. You'll never know his love. He's faithful to his promises. He's vindicated in all his judgments and faithful to all of his promises. We're the unfaithful ones. And David saw that. David admitted that. David showed that. And he received grace and mercy and forgiveness. Number three, if Paul's arguments are true, Teaching is teaching's true, then it undermines the justice of God. This one's a little tricky. This one's thick, um, and it's tough. And he goes on to say this: the objection says, "But if our tra- but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us?" I speak as a human, by no means. For then, how could God judge the world? Again, this kind of a, this is a little bit different. But the idea behind this is that, I'll try to simplify this as best that I understand it and have learned this. The idea is that they're saying since our unrighteousness, since we're so bad and we see we're unrighteous, causes God's righteousness to shine through, right? As it were, we're so rotten. God is so good. He is so wonderful. He is righteous in that way. Why should he then go ahead and inflict wrath upon us? Right? Because we're just making him look good by our sin, so why should we even be punished for that? Does that make a little bit of sense to you? That's kind of the thought behind us. Why judge if sin magnifies your righteousness? If our wrongness magnifies your goodness, shouldn't he be content with that? Shouldn't you be glad that we're so bad, yes, you're so good? Shouldn't that be enough? Why punish sin? Since our sin makes him look good. That's kind of the idea behind all of this. Well, the answer is very simple. The answer is simple because that's what sin deserves. It violates his justice. It doesn't matter that, okay, yeah, we're sinful. God is so good. He should be happy and content with that and not pour wrath out on us. No, 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 no. Our sin deserves justice and it must be dealt with. So it's not enough to say, I'm wrong, right? I am wrong and God's right. And so that's good. That should be enough. No wrongness needs to be dealt with. In addition, he goes on to say, well, how can he judge the world? So these people inside the church are saying, okay, we're bad and you're good and that's, that should be enough. But logically, that, that would mean that God would not be able to pour out his wrath on any kind of sin. And that's okay, because we don't want to be judged and have wrath on us, but we want other people to have the wrath of God, but not us. <laughs> you know, you're good. Paul goes on to say, how can he judge the world then? Right? If our sin in, in enhances his glory, there's no need for him to judge the world, even though sin deserves and requires justice and the consequences that our sin brings about. Understand? So Paul puts that one aside. That's one's a little bit different. It's harder for us to relate to in that way. I think the first two and this last one, you can relate to much easier. But still, that's an objection that Paul was anticipating and saying, that, you know, I'm, I'm expecting to hear this kind of thing. so. We're bad. That makes God look so good. Why should he give us wrath since we're making him look good? Because you deserve it because that's what sin deserves. He wouldn't be a just God if he didn't punish sin. <laughs> now the fourth one and final one for this morning, and I just want us to learn from this. Please learn from this as his as as people because these are, these are objections then. They're kind of objections now within the church. You could see it. There's, there's that thread there. The last one is this. They say this, <clears throat> verse 7. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? You can see where this one's going. And why not do evil that good may come? As some people have slanderously charged us with saying, their condemnation is just. This is antinomianism. This is is the, the idea that salvation, okay, man, if salvation is all of grace, if I'm just saved by grace, if grace covers my sins, then what's to stop me from sinning freely if grace covers my sin, right? If I'm under grace, so what? Then, then I can sin there, sin all that I want. There's the, uh, the popular phrase, I guess, of saying, free from the law, oh, blessed condition, sin all I want with easy remission, right? That's kind of an idea. Well, that's an idea that's been taken on by so many in the church today. That this, if, if grace covers sins, if there's nothing that I have to do, if I don't have to do this in order to, to maintain my salvation, if I'm just covered by... See, sheer grace is very scary, isn't it? Because it puts everything on God and nothing on you. There's not an inch that you can do to maintain or gain, ma- gain or maintain salvation. So it is scary in some ways. Because we always want to do a little something. Maybe God will see and be happy. Grace says, no, there's nothing. It's all been paid for in Christ. He's done it all. Well, then these guys go a step further. Well, then since I'm under grace, I could sin all I want and be free and, you know, still have my salvation. That's, that's a misunderstanding. Paul's saying, no, that's slanderous. That's so wrong. Are you kidding me? But that's teaching today. Do you ever hear of the hyper grace movement, Joseph Prince? This is what he teaches, basically. Our sin is covered by grace. Our sin is covered by grace. We have grace. Now, should you sin? No, not necessarily. But when we do, we're covered by grace. There's no emphasis on repentance, remorse, reconciliation. It's just kind of having the best, best of both worlds, if you want to put it that way. I can have God, no, I'm going to heaven, but I can still live any way that I want, and, and I'm going to be, and God's okay with that. And I'll work like that. You can't have it both ways. You can't serve two masters. You'll love one, you'll hate the other. That's, a, that's a, a real trick from Satan, but this is kind of, hey, man, if it's all by grace, if it's not by what I do, if it's not something based on my performance then why not just do what I want to do if I still have salvation? That's hyper-grace. That's easy believism. That's what so many people today, oh, I love Jesus. They'll say they love Jesus today, but tonight they're going to be hanging out at the bars and doing whatever they want to do and living the life they want to live. But I love Jesus and he loves me, so that's okay, right? That's giving half your heart, which is really none of your heart to Christ. That's conditional obedience. You know, I'm just going to obey in this area. And we do that all the time. We hate when things go wrong, like in a civil way, when people rob from another person, when they kill another person unjustly, you know, when they murder somebody. We hate that. We can't stand that. We want to You know, we heard about the shooting last night at Kennywood. Oh, man, at Kennywood, that person should be taken. Right, yes. But in other areas, we have grace. When it comes to my sexuality, when it comes to my proclivities in that area, the more, the then it's okay. <clears throat> we want to make that okay. You know, we could be okay in some areas which God calls sin, but not in other areas we're convicted. See, we, it doesn't work like that. <clears throat> Salvation is all of grace. And we don't go on sinning. Paul says, <clears throat> excuse me, why not do evil the good may come as some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just. We don't do that. What do we do as Christians? Turn over to Romans 6. We can go on and on. We're not going to with this idea. We'll talk more about it as we move through this epistle, as we get to chapter 6 and so forth. But listen, when you're truly saved, when you're truly converted, here's the idea. Paul says this, because he's talking about this again. This is one of the themes that runs through Roman. What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? Right? Because we're saved by grace. Do what we want. Why not? Keep sinning because that'll that'll bring forth more God. People will see more of God's grace in my life even when I'm sinning. And he still loves me. Even when I'm sinning and he still loves me, right? That shows forth the grace. So why not do it? Keep on doing it. Paul says, no, no, no. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death, buried with him in baptism in order that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's it. We're done with the old man. We come into Christ. If you're in Christ, you have new affections, new priorities. And the top priority is, I think, one of the top priorities for every true believing Christian is to walk in full obedience to Jesus Christ, like I said earlier. Isn't that a top priority for you? Don't you wish, don't you want every moment in your life to be in obedience and according to his word and his will and his way? I know the sin nature fights against that, but if you're truly a Christian, that is our desire, that is our hope that is our goal that i'm faithful to you that i'm obedient to you no matter what no matter what my sinful flesh says no matter the temptations that come from the world no matter how the devil really tries to take me off that i am faithful to you lord jesus christ in every way that's don't you love don't you want that yes To be faithful in our reading to be faithful in our prayer. praying to be faithful in our actions to be faithful in our words that really build up, that really encourage and not tear down to lovingly confront instead of like passively let people go, right don't we that's what he's saying here, and that's what true true obedience looks like. the grace given to us, the depth of that grace moves us and motivates us to greater and greater obedience at least it should it ought to do that right, but we don't like grace alone because it leaves us help you know it leaves us. Everything in God's hands, as it were. It leaves us helpless in that way. But it's precisely when you realize that you are saved by grace alone that all these objections melt away. They just do. Really? You know, if you're a true Christian, right? It doesn't matter. If you're a true Christian this morning, then you know, you know that it doesn't matter that you were born into a covenant community. It doesn't matter that you were born into the church. If I'm not trusting in Jesus Christ alone for my salvation, I know all the advantages I have. I'm thankful for them. But they don't mean that I'm saved. I don't care how often you come to church. I don't care how many mission trips you take. I don't care how me- much scripture you have memorized. If you win all the, the Bible memory verse challenges, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't matter if you don't have Jesus Christ. They're good if you have Christ, they're not bad things but they don't save you. capiche? That's a big, big deal. And every single Christian knows that. You know that. You know that being born into that doesn't make you a Christian. Paul was aware of all the advantages he had. He knew who he was, but what did he do? He counted them as done. All the advantages he had as a Jew, what did he say about them? I can't use the word here because this is G, not even PG-13. But Scripture says this. Whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. You know that. Indeed, I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Amen. So you know that. And that word for rubbish actually means dung. I count everything, all my things, all my treasures, all my past achievements, my gain in this, in Judaism, all that. I count that as nothing for the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ. And you know that. Number two, you know, and every true Christian knows that you don't deserve salvation. Right? God is not unfaithful. We're the un- we're the faithless ones, man. Right? He is not unfaithful. He is faithful. And if you're a true Christian, you know that you don't deserve salvation, that you deserve only condemnation, man. You're not this little good person or mostly good person or even kind of good person. Spiritually speaking, we're sinful, man. We deserve that wrath, and every true Christian knows that. That's why grace is so amazing, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that God saved a wretch like me. That's true. Not even one person. It's it's a miracle that even one person is saved, let alone countless millions. He is faithful to his promise, and you know that if you're a true Christian this morning. That objection melts away. Every believer knows, every true believer knows that sin deserves wrath. Right, it's not just "Hey, God, I'm bad. You're good." Why send you? Ra-? You know that you deserve wrath. You know that you deserve judgment. You know that you deserved hell apart from Christ. If you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, you kind of well, hell's kind of tough, isn't it? That's a that's a tough one. Maybe maybe purgatory. That's that was one of the things about being a Catholic. <laughs> you're not gonna burn in hell. You'll be purified in purgatory, but eventually you're gonna be there, right? Now, it's not that way with scripture, right? It's it's one or the other. Every true Christian knows that we deserve the wrath of God, that we transgress willingly, wantonly, and continually. We're sinful, He's holy, and His punishment is just. He's glorified even more by justly meting out punishment. Do you know that? Do you know that God is glorified when He meets out punishment? Oh, God is mean. Oh, God is. No, 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 no. He is glorified. Why? Because we're guilty. It's like a judge. A righteous judge, an honorable judge, which is they're harder and harder to find these days, right? An incorrupt, is it incorruptible? Incorruptible judge that sentences the first degree murderer to death, and we say yes because that first degree murderer deserved it. It was malice aforethought. He thought about it. He knew what he was going to do. He planned on that massacre. He knew that he was going to go in and kill that family or that wife and do what he was going to do. So he deserved that justly. And we honor that judge, don't we, when he passes down that sentence. This is what you receive. This is what you deserve. We say, yes, your honor. And there's a righteousness to it. As opposed to the judge who, with that same person, offers bail. And they get out on bail, and what do they do? They go and do it again. See, he's a righteous judge and he's glorified in his righteous judgments and he's just in his wrath that we deserve. And you know that. Finally, the true Christian knows who their Savior is. Do you know Jesus Christ? Do you love Jesus Christ? Are you trusting? You know him. If you've been truly converted, then he is, he is your Savior. He is your Lord. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just one to follow. He's not just one you might hope in at the end of your life when everything. He is your Savior and your Lord now. and You are trusting in him for your salvation. The true Christian know their Savior, and we know what we have been saved from. And not only what we've been saved from, but saved to. Amen? So you are saved from the punishment, the wrath, and hell. Amen? And you are saved to glorious heaven, eternity, and his presence. Amen? And praise God. So we know that. We know who we are. We know what we deserve. And yet we know what we received from the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is grace. And so far from seeing grace as a license to sin, that's just stupid. Any true Christian, any true Christian, there's this whole lordship salvation controversy. I'll make Jesus my savior, but I'll make him my lord at another time. So he's my savior now, which means I can live as I want until I make him my lord and submit to him. That's a real teaching. You understand? It's a false teaching. Every true Christian knows what they've been delivered from and what we're looking forward to. We don't see grace as a license to sin. We see it for what it is, and so we live our lives in grateful obedience. That's what grace causes us to do, to be obedient, to be a slave for the Lord Jesus Christ, to stay as far away as sin as we possibly can, still in our saved and yet struggling with sin nature, right? We want to stay as far away as sin as we can, and we repent when we do sin against him. So only when we see, you see how these arguments just melt away for the true Christian, for the true believer. We're not counting on this. We're not counting on that. We're counting on Christ alone. Amen. We do have advantages, but we're not counting those advantages to save us. We know that He's faithful and we're faithless. We know we deserve His wrath if you're a true Christian, but we receive grace. And because we receive grace, we're not going to live in a manner unworthy of our calling because I love you too much, Christ, to dishonor your name by constantly walking in sin and showing the world and telling them I'm, I'm a Christian and yet consistently, constantly living in sinful ways as if I'm not a Christian at all. I don't do that. And when we do sin, we take it seriously and we repent of it. Only when we see by grace how sinful we are can we appreciate the grace given to us in Jesus Christ. That's the big point here. That's why Paul's trying to say, this is how sinful you are <laughs> because you need this grace. And this is how gracious he is. Therefore, live for him. Big theme kind of in, in Romans in that way, going through the book. Next week, when we talk about these. It's kind of like um, the almost like the grand finale at at a fireworks festival. You know, that boom, 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 boom. He just covers us under sin when he talks about no one being righteous, Jews and Gentiles. So he dealt dealt with the Gentiles, chapter one, chapter two, more the Jews. Coming into chapter three, he puts all of us there. And next week we're going to just see every avenue's closed off and then he moves into grace alone, justification by grace alone. It's a great, great, Great uh, theme of scripture. So a couple more sermons on our condition, our sinful condition, and then on the glorious remission of sin as we move into the middle of chapter three.